You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health Podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation, and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hello, I'm Teresa McKee, your host for A Mindful Moment. Thank you for joining me as we explore ways to increase mindfulness in our day-to-day experiences. In addition to our regular weekly podcast, we also have the privilege of interviewing experts from around the world to further our understanding of how to live mindfully. Ryan Estes is an American Buddhist entrepreneur. As the founder of KitCaster, a podcast booking agency, he facilitates thousands of extraordinary conversations. Ryan has owned a media and marketing agency for the past 10 years, and for eight of those, hosted the Founders Podcast, Talk Launch, consistently ranked in the top 100 podcasts. He is a long-practicing meditator and mindfulness practitioner. Hi, Ryan. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Teresa. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm really interested in having this conversation. I'm going to start with, I'm very curious, what came first, entrepreneurship or Buddhism? Ooh, that's a good question. Both were rooted very young. You know, I probably started getting interested in uh, Buddhism, uh, more specifically like Taoism, I suppose, if we're going to date it, when I was a teenager. Um, and Probably prior to that, I was mowing my neighbor's lawns. So I, I, I probably entrepreneurship came first. Interesting. Well, what drew you to it? You know, I, I picked up a copy of the Tao Te Ching and I was just kind of fascinated with the opacity of it. I mean, it's like it's full of contradictions just directly, you know, which I thought was hilarious. You know, at the same time, I was probably, you know, interested in poetry. And I had a great group of friends as a kid. We'd go to Village Inn and write poetry and burn candles, kind of that kind of vibe. And so kind of, you know, um, wading in, the Tao Te Ching is the first thing I got, you know, and I I read through that and I was like, wow, this is totally, um, don't understand this at all. And so I got some commentary about it and just fell in love with it because the the first chapter of the commentary is is largely around the the contradiction of the first line, which is the way that can be spoken is not the true way, which is 
kind of a hilarious way to start a book, which is to say, there's nothing I can write to tell you the truth, but I'm going to go ahead and write this out now, you know? And so I started to see some of the winking and some of the humor, um, you know, that was in the Tao Te Ching and that kind of took me into like Zen and, and those things. So th- that was kind of my entry point. Fascinating. I didn't find all of this until much later in life. Okay. So as an American Buddhist entrepreneur, how did mindfulness and meditation help you succeed with KitCaster? Mm, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, and mindfulness is a, a critical component of um, my practice, you know, kind of a, in a Vipassana style. Um, but, you know, what I found is that kind of the meta type practices really informed, I think, the creation of this company in a very profound way. You know, Kitcaster is a, a talent agency essentially for podcasting. And we launched a pilot program and found some success really early on. And what, what was different, I suppose, in my career with this project is that as opposed to the software project I'd been working on, where you kind of have this lean and mean attitude of like, you know, less people, more profit. Um, to scale a company like this, we'd really need to like have people. Like we're very um, reliant on talent, um, and and so that meant that we had to put a culture together. We had to have an office. We had to have a code of ethics. We had to have mission. We had to rally people around a larger cause. So a lot of um, interest on my part went into like how can we do this in a right way you know and of course buddhism is great with all the lists um, of different ways to (laughs) to do things in a right way Um, but kind of the tenet of right livelihood really spoke to me and so i I looked towards the the meta practice of loving kindness and how i could integrate that into kind of our workflow how i could extend that to our staff and our clients and the podcasters we work with and so that kind of became my modus operandi, you know, is bringing love and kindness into the workplace, which can be a little bit dicey, right? Because love and <laughs> is a weird word to bring into work, you know. So you have to make sure that um, the expression of that is is something that can be palatable for everybody. I think. Yeah, you know, I spend a lot of time facilitating conflict mediation, so I would love to hear maybe a little bit about what that looks like to bring loving kindness in the workplace. Yeah, you know, I wish there was a better proactive example, but my career has been littered with examples of ways I don't want to be treated, <laughs> you know, um, or that's like abusive bosses or just like throwing people under the bus and clicks and games and a, a lot of these things that I don't want to happen. So it's almost a defensive posture. So, or maybe it's just reverse engineering the the results that I do want, you know. So that takes shape in a, in, in a few different ways. I think where Buddhism has been transformative for me is because, um, at, at least with American Buddhism, and I'm working on a definition for this, it's not as it's not anything to believe. Rather, it's a thing you do. It's a practice. It's something that gets done. And so, I wanted to to implement something similar where we can all point to a mission statement and be like that's what we're doing but that's just words on a page you know so one thing that we do is we have these things called hey pal cards which is just a little postcard um, that's fun that we'll kind of exchange with each other so if someone does something nice they brought in bagels i just write a little note that says hey i i love it that you brought in the bagels and you give it to them so people are kind of handing out these hey pal cards kind of like valentines um, as just small ways to show appreciation um, in a positive way 
in, in a negative sense too, because there's always going to be challenges and things that arise is and figuring out a, a way that we can manage that in a way that um, the management of that takes place at work. Um, as a leader, I feel like it's my position to really be respectful and demonstrate the separation of working and not working. I want my staff to have fulfilling lives outside of work. And particularly now where, you know, we have kind of, we have an HQ, but people work from home sometimes, people um, work from the office. I want people to be able to hang their hat when they're done with their work, you know? So from my perspective, that's creating a lot of systems and processes around managing what we call spicy <laughs> interactions. Um, so there's we have actually a Slack channel, which is called Unconditional Positive Regard, um, which is something that we bring to our clients in communication, um, probably like your audience. The majority of our communication is done uh, digitally with email. And we just have a rule that we're never negative in any capacity on email because it kind of manifests itself into something worse. Our first job is to not make anything worse. Uh, but that doesn't mean that big emotions don't pop up. You know what I mean? <laughs> Especially when you're dealing with, you know, a lot of people. They're, they're, there's challenging situations. So we have this Slack channel called Unconditional Positive Regard, which is basically just a venting outlet where <laughs> if you're dealing with something tough, as opposed to like, um, you know, continuing that conversation, bring it over here and let everybody support you and like, and, uh, and bring it back up. So, you know, working on, on ways to bring right livelihood into our business is, is kind of a central effort for me. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. And every company could use that. I have to say, <laughs> and again, you know, we don't just do conflict mediation. I just seem to be doing a lot of it lately. And I don't know if it's because of the sort of this transition back into some people returning to work, people not wanting to go back into the office. Things seem to be in flux. So I love yeah. those ideas. And we recently, we just got back from the uh, podcast movement conference in Dallas. And I have to say, there is a there seems to be a podcast for everything. We, we saw wrestlers, uh, Bigfoot investigators, um, finances, of course, a lot of wellness, which is what we focus on. But I'm wondering what role do you think podcasts play in healing our ailing culture? I read that and I was like, we need that so badly. That's part of what we're trying to do. But what do you think about that? You know, I think about it a couple of different ways. You know, I'm, I feel so fortunate to work in podcasting because I do see it as such a healing force. On one side, it's, it seems to stand in opposition to maybe some of the division that happened in this country around social media and just this algorithmic take that we've had for the last 10 or 15 years to kind of silo people in their own bubbles and really get them worked up. And actually just reward them for getting worked up. Of course, they're all getting worked up digitally, which is a common trope, right? You might be at each other's throat online on your Instagram page or something, but I almost guarantee that if you met each other for coffee, you're going to meet each other on best terms. You know, everyone's on their best behavior. Um, <laughs> there's plenty of hate for American and American culture, but I think one thing that we really excel at is like, being friendly to each other, you know. I, I know we get criticism for that. Why is everyone always smiling here? You know, but but that's something that we have um, that's that's kind of baked in across the board in American culture is the desire to meet someone in the middle, at least when you're speaking face to face. And we get a little bit of that here. You know, we're on a Zoom call, um, 
but you have the same cues. You have the same intention of like, we're sitting down for this conversation. We're not going to be distracted. You know, our phones are away. They're not uh, beeping and booping at us. You know, we have this uh, a time to to give each other and really kind of get to know each other a little bit that I think is absolutely transformational and healing. It is, it is for me personally when I go on other people's podcasts and it is when I listen to other people's podcasts, you know? So I think that's a strong component is just, it's undivided attention um, in the podcast space, but also it's kind of giving people the opportunity to connect as opposed to uh, repel each other. It's changing right now more toward video, but I do think that there is an intimacy in podcasting that doesn't exist on a screen, you know, when you're just like on social media and it is a way for people to connect around a topic, something they have in common or something they want to learn together. And it, it can provide a space for, let's call it a calmer discussion about some things that are, they, they, they get so out of control so quickly on social media. And so I, I really, I think that that's an accurate take and I hope more people listen to podcasts. What are some of the differences that, that you started so young? I don't know if this will actually apply now, but I was wondering if you can remember the difference or some of the differences about your life pre-Buddhism or meditation and mindfulness, all of that versus post. It's kind of interesting to, to call yourself a Buddhist in one way. And I, I've really been experimenting with that because I think a, a component of American Buddhism and maybe a defining component is kind of a gatekeeping, um, purity testing, uh, I'm not good enough, I sh I'm a tourist here, I'm not a Buddhist. Um, some of the kind of negative self-talk is, is prevalent <laughs> in the Buddhist community. So to kind of, I think, just confront that in myself, I've really been putting it out there that I am a Buddhist. And what does that mean to me? What does it mean to be an American Buddhist? So how has, you know, Buddhism, which again, isn't something I believe, rather it's something I do kind of influenced um, my life and, and seen changes, you know, they're, they're very subtle. Um, I suppose, you know, dabbling in Buddhist scriptures, which are super fun, or or um, Taoist scriptures, or uh, Hindu scriptures is one thing, um, but I always felt a little bit like, am I doing this right? Is this what meditation is? That's also a big strong component of meditation. Until I think you know, I had some some breakthrough moments where I was like, okay, this is right. Um, this is the right path, and I, I see a direction for me and uh, a place to be held. You know, so my sitting practice and my uh, walking around practice, um, I think, have influenced me in, in very subtle and nuanced ways, but I think in very important and enriching ways. You know, as a young man, I think it, um, maybe not unlike a lot of young men in this country, like anger was a major. Um, thing in my life. Like I just was kind of gripped by it. And for no particular reason, you know, I had a wonderful family and a lot of opportunities growing up and, you know, but it was just, there was a fire in me, which also could be a characteristic of Americans because after all, we're here for some reason. Um, so I, I think the, the contemplative practices have definitely stemmed the anger or at least shown me um, how it shows up in my body and how it also leaves, you know, just kind of the um, impermanence of, of that particular emotion was a really important insight. Um, 
that extends and that sensitivity, I think, extends to everything. So if I'm kind of an adherent of like a human potential movement, which can be at odds with Buddhism sometimes, you know, it's like I'm not meditating to become a better person or something, you know, it's not self-improvement. But I do think that self-improvement is important, you know, and I think the way that you can um, unbiasedly approach yourself is like, how am I feeling in my body right now? You know, how does this make me feel? And becoming more in tuned and, and more sensitive to emotions that are arising, but also, you know, things that are happening physically, you know, I think, um, and how that creates calm and stillness, you know, as you're doing different techniques, perhaps it's a body scan. I know for me lately, I've been all wrapped up in my right ankle. Like for some reason, my right ankle is holding some tension. And so by being sensitive to that, which comes from practice, I can intentionally find that tension in my body, relax that into my ankle, which creates overall ease and calm and peace in my body, which ripples outward in, uh, you know, unexpected ways. So, you know, it's a nuanced take. Um, and I know I'm not supposed to say it's performance enhancing, but I really think it is, <laughs> at least for me, uh, of becoming of what I really want, which is at peace and calm and um, hopefully kind and caring. So if that if that enters into my marriage and my relationship with my kids and my team at work, um, then that's a great net benefit. Absolutely. I think it also, it's it's a slow process. Like you don't recognize maybe right away some of the shifts that are happening. So I'm very in tune with my body too. The first thing I noticed was I didn't realize I was pretty reactive before I started practicing. So talking about anger and it wasn't always anger, but sometimes it was. And so I started to notice that I was no longer reacting. There was a pause. And it just kind of came about organically from the practices. And I do think it makes us, and I'm a dabbler in Buddhism and Hinduism. I, you know, I've read the texts, but that's funny that you said that because I'm like, well, I can't say I'm a Buddhist because I don't <laughs> qualify. But it's really a matter of recognizing that if you learn to be in touch with yourself, then you're no longer doing that automatic projecting onto other people or you're recognizing, like some things amaze me still, someone maybe is behaving inappropriately. And instead of getting irritated, my first thoughts go to, I wonder what they need. Like why, you know what I mean? It just kind of shifts how you look at the world. And yeah. I think it, I think it makes us better humans, <laughs> but yeah, you know, particularly mindfulness, you know, as observing what's just kind of the, the basic idea that you're, you're not your thoughts, you know, like your thoughts come up from somewhere. We have no idea where, and they go somewhere else and we have no idea why. And just observing that, creates insights. I mean, that's the other component that um, I think is is lost in in the popularity of mindfulness, which I, I think is amazing. And you have all the apps and you have all this great stuff of, of different techniques. And they really kind of sell it as like, hey, this is performance enhancing stuff. Um, but it, it's like, as you become more adept and finding more concentration and more focus uh, of allowing thoughts coming and going, you have these unbelievable flashes of insights that kind of overwhelm your whole body. That's a mystical experience, you know, you know, and I, uh, I know it's been written in the literature that that can be destabilizing for some folks. Um, but of course, you know, some people eat glue. I mean, it's not, everything is a fix for everybody. Um, but, but the insight component is really interesting. You know, the Pasana, uh, mindfulness meditation and Zazen meditation was kind of a first really big stage. And then the the loving kindness became a really good resource, 
you know, extending loving kindness to my friends and family, um, people I'm neutral with, uh, people I'm in conflict with was very, very healing, particularly around that anger kind of issue. Uh, and I still come back to that all the time. Um, in January, I kind of set out a new project because I think spiritually speaking, it's it's fun to have a project, you know? So the, the project was really to bring energy from my head down lower into my abdomen, which sounds a little esoteric and weird, but I think all of us understand that like, you know, anxiety, stress, depression is all seems to be located behind your eyes. And that the the more you come into your body, it can be, it can have that calming, peaceful feeling. And so I've been working a lot on that and like doing different breathing techniques in my sitting practice, um, you know, uh, acupuncture and massage work, like a lot of stuff trying to incorporate that. And what I found about halfway through is that I was having a hard way to measure, like, is my energy lower? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, okay. I think it is a little bit, but it didn't have kind of the friction and the feedback I was looking for. So I started using uh, a new technique, um, kind of a, a Zogchen technique that brings your awareness um, specifically out of your visual field, because we are, you know, biological beings that are predatory, that we're very keen on our eyesight. It's kind of a dominant sensory organ is our eyes. So we're kind of always reaching into the world with your eyes. Um, but if you can remember to just, instead of like reach into the world with your eyes, rather receive the audio through your ears. Intuitively, we kind of have this feeling that we receive with with hearing. We're not reaching out with our hearing. Although you can, if you kind of like put your, your mind to it, so to speak. And what I've found is that it has this unbelievable centering feeling for me physically, emotionally, mentally, that as much as I can possibly remember to, I start listening and noting what I'm hearing, You know, whether it's your voice in my headphones or this little side fan I have over here or behind me, I can hear the garage door opening and closing. And it gives you a, 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 a really interesting experience of the the space you're in, whether it's a room or a hall. Um, but it also kind of takes the burden, I think, of the your visual cortex off your mind, which has this kind of like stress dispelling um, tactic. So that's kind of my current practice is, you know, okay, cool. We want to bring our energy from our head to our abdomen, but how do we do that? Once something I can actually feel that happening, um, some of these Dzogchen techniques have been really helpful and transformative. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I just heard, I think I heard it at the conference, but they were talking about how visual uh, activities take up 30% of our energy in that part of the brain and audio is only 3%. So you have to really focus to get the audio part, right? And of course, many people listen to podcasts audio only. So I wonder like what difference that makes, especially on a topic like ours, where we're really focusing on breathing and mindfulness. At the very beginning, when I first started studying all of this, it was kind of two paths. One was mindfulness and one was emotional freedom technique, which is tapping. So it's like acupressure. Mm -hmm. And they're both great. But with the tapping, you get a much quicker sort of confirmation physically. Whereas with you know mindfulness and meditation, for me, it just takes a little longer to notice more of the nuances where the tapping is very direct. You can feel the difference. You can feel the shift. Like I hold my stress in my stomach. So tapping on that meridian, I can feel the release of that tension instantly versus kind of the calmer, a little bit longer um, process with mindfulness and meditation. But they're great. And I think in many ways, because we are energy, the two 
obviously go together. I just don't know that everybody thinks of that, but mindfulness is all about mind, body, and soul. They're all connected. You know, the other component too, probably worth mentioning is, is kind of, I think a differentiator for American Buddhism, because we bring our culture into this. And at least um, for me, like science is a major (laughs) part of my upbringing, you know, academic rigor, you know, so I can't help but cringe a little bit when I hear myself saying things like I need to move my energy from my head to my belly, or, <laughs> you know, I'm tracking the meridians and, and uh, chakras and, and some of, I'd rather say endocrine system, <laughs> you know, so, it, which is tough because when you're moving into kind of um, uh, spiritual domains, science hasn't really caught up. And actually the descriptions uh, are more apt and more specific in, in kind of spiritual terminology. Um, which is something the the dichotomy of that it, internally is something that I've grown accustomed to, and that that is a part of our tradition. Is that yes, yes, I'm going to move energy around, and we're going to talk about things that can't necessarily be proven by science. However, I am absolutely fascinated um, by the science that has been done and that can be done. You know, so it's to say, like kind of like the Dalai Lama, where he he talks about, you know, hey, anything that can't be proven scientifically in our text should be seen as like metaphor, you know, and of all the world religions, that's really the only one that doesn't, you know, kind of worship at the altar of these dusty tomes, you know, they're like, Hey, yeah, that stuff's important for sure. But you can also just throw it out. (laughs) You know, let's start with breathing in and breathing out and I'll see you in 40 years and tell me what you figure out, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, science partly for good reason is slow. But I know even since I've been doing this kind of work, just what they've discovered in neuroscience, which I've had to change things I teach because now they're figuring it out. You know what I mean? And so I think it's the same with anything. It just hasn't caught up yet. And if you if you experience something and it's effective or it works for you or uh, you discover something that you didn't realize you've always had, but now you can access it, then I no longer need science to tell me. But in my work, I need science because same thing. It's like to talk to the main population of the groups I work with, um, they're looking for evidence-based whatever, right? I'm always looking for words to replace it so that someone doesn't think I'm trying to get, you know, religious or (laughs) woo-woo. But it's like, for goodness sake, the traditions are so ancient and have been around for so long. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, well, and you want to be taken seriously. You know, that's yeah. an important part of our culture that, that you, yeah. you can speak scientifically and understand and like, and that the rigor is important, even if you might disagree with the, the results of the hypothesis, you know, I mean, and the results now are, are pretty positive um, around uh, meditation in particular, you know, I kind of like how they boil it down to like altered states, create altered traits, you know, that there is some kind of um, connection with you know, alternative states of consciousness, which obviously meditation is one of those, creating new neural pathways that actually create tendencies, you know, which is exciting because we know that negatively. We know when we're doing the the wrong thing, it's really easy to get sucked into the gravity of the refrigerator and go back and eat another piece of pizza. You know, we know that happens. Yeah. Um, But also it happens on the other side too, that you can implement positive behaviors and it becomes easier because altered states become altered traits. It's fascinating. The whole field is fascinating to me. I guess I have just a couple of questions before we have to go. One is, because you are clearly a longtime practitioner of this, do you have any tips for someone who is new to meditation? You know, I hear a lot of people say, I get frustrated. It's too boring. 
I don't have time to do it. So do you have any tips you could share for people that feel like they want to, but they just can't quite get through it? Yeah. You know, um, first one is, is there's no need to meditate. So if you're struggling with it, just don't do it. It's okay. You know, it's totally fine. Most of my practice was spent early on being like, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I'm bored. My nose scratches, all of those things. Um, you start to kind of map the terrain once you're in there long enough. Um, but I think it's also, you know, it's good to find a community around you that, that can help you, um, I spent a lot of time looking for more of a formalized community uh, around me. Um, to my experience, all of those communities really thought that I should just dedicate my time to their community. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of adorable and amazing, you know, and flattering, you know, it's like, okay, cool. But I'd rather kind of join multiple groups and, and kind of surf through some of this material, which works for me. Um, I would like to speak to one thing, um, what I think is going to be very kind of changing for the meditation uh, community in general is that, you know, people have been talking about the psychedelic renaissance for some time, but now laws in Oregon that are wide open around these kind of medicines and, and ketamine and things like that. And in Colorado, they're going to vote for that in November. So these laws are going to start opening up in a similar way to cannabis and the way that cannabis has been legalized. But I think there's some major differences. <laughs> Obviously, um, cannabis can be destabilizing for some people, but not really. Whereas like psychedelics, most certainly can become very destabilizing. And another attribute of American Buddhism is it was really founded in the original psychedelic kind of renaissance or, or culture of LSD in the 50s and 60s. Those folks are <laughs> turned on, tuned in and dropped out, um, went all over the world and found these teachers and came back and brought it to us. That's the origin story of American Buddhism. And so I think what, what they discovered and what a lot of folks have discovered is that these practices can be a stabilizing way to manage some of the insights that come from really intense psychedelic work. And the communities right now should be kind of preparing themselves for a lot of people coming in the front door, having life-shattering revelations on really powerful substances and looking for communities and ways to integrate and deal with this. Um, so, you know, maybe my message is for somebody who's had a ceremonial experience in plant medicine and came back and has realized that they need to make massive changes and they need to get their meditation practice in order and they're having kind of a manic moment. Um, take your time. Don't worry about it. Stuff's waiting for you. Take it slow and easy. Um, I think a big part of my message is uh, right now for the Buddhist community and the contemplative community is that there's going to be a lot of people coming in that front door um, looking for answers. And I think if we can meet them with care and compassion, but also pace, you know, you don't need to do this, <laughs> you know, a, a nice, again, we're talking unscientifically here, but the idea of like reincarnation, um, the religious aspect of Buddhism gives us this nice kind of caveat to say like, hey man, you got a thousand lifetimes to work out this stuff. Love the energy and enthusiasm, but you can take it easy too. We do try to really reinforce this for people is that you don't have to meditate, but there are a million benefits to meditating. Everything from just calming down to really processing maybe 
big insights or traumatic events or anything that's happened. And it's only about 12% of the population, I think is the last number I saw that don't respond well to meditation. I mean, they really have an averse reaction or it's traumatizing in some way, but I do think it's a beautiful path for looking at whatever it is that you need to look at or whatever it is you're trying to change. Um, I guess I would ask you the same question about mindfulness. You know, I focus a lot on just pay attention, right? So to whatever you're doing, doing the dishes or talking to you or, you know, whatever it is. But do you have any uh, suggestions for people who they want to start practicing mindfulness, but they don't have time to set time aside for it? um, And then they forget, right, as they're going through their day. So do you have any tips or suggestions for that? Yeah, you know, there's a time that pops up for most of us, which is at night. You know, you're laying down to bed, maybe you wake up and you're getting tortured by all the things you need to do, or you're reliving that argument that you had in the morning, or you're really upset with your spouse for something. Um, (laughs) You know, Buddhas talk about uh, like this demon named Mara that comes and haunts you in the middle of the night. It's kind of a fun way to think about it, it or personify it. That becomes a good time to practice, you know? Um, the the mindfulness component is actually kind of advanced, you know, because it's boring and it's hard and you're always starting from zero, you know, because guess what? You're not going to stop the thoughts. <laughs> They're going to keep coming. And then you're going to realize you're swept up in thoughts and you're going to start again. When you're racked with anxiety in your bed, it's a great time to practice. Maybe not mindfulness, you know, maybe you should use a different technique, whether it's mantra based, you know, um, Transcendental meditation is great for that because it's just tones. It's something that you can actually use to occupy your your mental space. Um, that's not necessarily mindfulness, but it has some of the similar benefits. You know, um, singing a song to yourself, assuming there's no one else in your in your bed. <laughs> um, and and in this case, particularly, you know, kind of the anxious nights. That's where I really like meta meditation, you know, M-E-T-T-A meditation. If folks haven't heard of that, just Google that, you know, it's, it's really nice to do for yourself um, and for other people. And it's, it seems to be soothing. I love when people dive in and they say, you know, Hey, I get so bored. Oh, what am I doing? Why, why should I do this? It's like, Oh, maybe you shouldn't, you know, try something else. You know, there's, there's different techniques we can do um, to, to, refine and cultivate our consciousness in a similar way you might go to the gym and you're like I don't want to do the treadmill today I want to do bench press I'm like cool man we'll do bench press you know um maybe in another component of american buddhism is we have a uh, uh, kind of a militaristic attachment to it like if i can't win at meditation then why would i do it and if you feel that way zen is the right way for you <laughs> The Zen meditators are the ones that are winning meditation, <laughs> in my opinion. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for such an interesting conversation and so much good information that people can use. And just thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I, I thank you for having this podcast with so many episodes and so many great guests. Um, I think it's really important, you know, the work that you're doing professionally and also extending that here. So other folks can uh, learn about this and hear some of these kind of, you know, different conversations. Absolutely. And thank you so much. I really appreciated Ryan's commitment to creating mindful work environments and for such an interesting conversation about the multiple ways we can practice mindfulness. If you're interested in being a guest on a podcast, 
visit his website at kitcaster.com. To see the entire interview, visit amindfulmoment.com and our YouTube channel at Work to Live. Until next time, I encourage you to meditate daily and be mindful in all of your everyday activities. Simply bring your full awareness to the present moment to build your mindfulness skills, paying attention to every detail of what you're doing, from washing dishes to work tasks to taking a walk. Your mind will wander, and that's normal. Each time you notice it has wandered, that's mindfulness. Consider how wonderful the world could be if everyone was mindful. You can help make that happen. It all starts with a mindful moment. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other great shows like the Daily Meditation Podcast, Everything Everywhere, and Movie Therapy. We deeply appreciate your support at patreon.com slash a mindful moment. Please be sure to subscribe to A Mindful Moment and follow us on Instagram at A Mindful Moment Podcast. Visit our website, amindfulmoment.com, to access podcasts, scripts, and book recommendations. A Mindful Moment is written and hosted by Teresa McKee and or Melissa Sims. The Spanish version is translated and hosted by Paola Tile. Intro music, Retreat by Jason Farnham. Outro music, Morning Stroll by Josh Kirsch, MediaWrite Productions. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is produced by Work to Live Productions.